1: Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Andrew Shutsky. Andrew has over 15 years of real estate investing experience, beginning with a house hack of his first home in 2007. He is currently an active and passive investor in over 1,300 units. And his firm, Redline Equity, has over $70 million in assets under management. So thank you so much for being on the show, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me on the show. So, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, both uh, personally and professionally, prior to getting involved in real estate investing and taking down that first uh, house hack in 07.
0: Yeah, so I'll take you back a couple of decades, and you know, going through college like any other normal adolescent, semi-professional, or working professional, not knowing really what you wanted to do. I I, pers- I had a, always had a number of passions, one of which was technology. So I went the typical, hey, this dude, four to five years in college, do your internships start a working career, uh, went well, a trajectory went well, continues to go actually in that direction. But there's a couple of things that became glaringly evident to me during those first, let's say decade of my career and going into you know, now two decades of my career and on the W-2 side. One is that, hey, I enjoy what I do, but I don't know that I have complete control over my destiny, right? In fact, I know that I don't. Um, I hated paying and I continue to hate paying so much percent of my income in taxes. And it really, I needed a way to diversify income. And I explored a number of different pathways to other passions in the automotive side of things, electronics, to home theater. And I'm like, okay, these are hobbies. And in the back of my mind, I knew I've always been interested in real estate. You know, I started with my first house hack, like you mentioned, just about 15 years ago. And that at that time, it was kind of a hobby. And I thought I'd continue to grow and expand, you know, one single family home at a time and quickly realized even with a decent income, you can only save, you know, a certain percent of your income per year, quickly run out of money. About five years later, after that house hack, I pivoted towards the short-term rental space, Continue to own and operate some of those units, but again, same constraint. I love that 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 body of uh, that area of expertise the short term side, but again, quickly run out of money. Fast forward another, let's say, seven years. I stumbled on a thread online on that you may have noticed a site called Bigger Pockets. It's you know a little bit a little bit known out there, and learned about this area of multifamily syndication, which is, you know, sounds like a very daunting word to those that don't know, but for me, something clicked. And I was like, wow, I didn't know what I was looking for until I stumbled upon this thing. And, you know, from that point forward, I went all in, Uh, read 30 to 40 different books, hired a mentor, joined multiple mastermind groups Uh, within a few months, found my way into a first partnership with a small role, continue to expand that and I feel like I found my stride. So and that's a long-winded way of answering your question, but uh that's been my journey in the past, you know, three minutes and covering 20 years. <laughs> so what was
1: um I didn't know that you had started in doing or working with short-term rentals prior. Mm-hmm. Uh what was the issue that you mainly found there? Obviously you said you ran out of money, but was there any
0: other constraints that you were finding um yeah that- i mean it's time consuming as well so yeah. even with an unlimited budget your ability to scale quickly and if you're if your goal and it all depends on what your goal is and at the beginning to be honest i didn't know what my goal was it was just hey let's make some money let's have some fun let's diversify income but if your real goal is financial security I'll, i hate to keep using the word financial freedom it's just like for me that means being able to do what i want in my own terms without having to answer to a third party if that's your true goal unless you're fortunate and blessed with Seven, eight figures of money to play with. Your ability to scale is very limited. And even if you do have that money, it still consumes an ordinate, a disproportionate amount of your time. So that was the main constraint. Those two things were really financial—you uh, know, the ability to, to 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 bring capital to close a property in short term, and then the time commitment to to own and manage those properties. Interesting. Yeah, I've heard different
1: strategies with people getting started in short-term rentals, and mm-hmm. it's like. I always kind of uh, steer away from them when I'm listening to them because it's one of those things where people are saying, well, you can sublease stuff if you don't have it. And you're like, this just gets riskier and riskier because, I mean, you catch yourself in like a, a 2020 kind of situation again uh, with COVID. And, I mean, if you're in this certain state, you won't be able to rent them forever. You know what I mean? I mean, year or so and... You're still paying that rent, you know what I mean? So yeah, there's, it's it can be it's that's one thing with the multifamily as I find as well is that like you were saying it's um the constraints mm-hmm. are really limited because there is a we don't have that much of the supply out there and we need more mm-hmm. of it and these governments know that so it's something mm-hmm. that kind of goes hand in hand with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it really comes down to you know especially if you dive into an emerging market or a booming market the risk is inherently even lower because the demand supply imbalance is even greater. So what types of
1: properties are you and your team really focusing on now, Andrew?
0: Yeah, we're, we're looking for a very specific niche, and it's not that uncommon in the space If you're in. Uh, we're looking for specifically class B, class C uh, properties with some type of value-add potential. And when I say value-add, I, I think more and more of us are getting creative in that space, right? And it, it, traditionally, you might go find a 1970s, 1980s vintage property that hasn't been renovated either in an interior or exterior, and uh, go and renovate them, You know, raise the rents to market rates, and then refinance or sell the property. In today's world, those properties, they're, they're still out there, but there are less and less of them. So I think you know, myself, my partners, my teams are getting more creative in things like on the operational side, what, we, what can we do around the property management? What can we do around sources of other income? Whether it's examples like valet trash, or it's uh, you know other things like adding a washer and dryer unit or cable and internet packages, these days you got to be creative. There are deals out there; they're just not as glaringly obvious as they were when there's abundant number of you know class B, yeah. you know, Like I said, classic interiors, ninety-five percent. There's there's still out there, but they're a needle in a haystack in these in these big markets.
1: Yeah, for sure. With your class C properties that you have now, are you seeing any um, changes
0: in Rent collections or anything like that? Actually, no. I mean, we picked up a couple last year, and the situation has improved quite a bit since we've closed on those. And the the properties that had collection challenges still have some uh, to a lesser degree, but it, not to the point where it's in, it's impacting our business plan. To be honest, I mean, I think we were fortunate. Uh, you know, inflation's both a curse word and a blessing these days, right? We're fortunate to see uh, a pretty big influx in, in rent growth, even in markets that we, we had underwritten probably half of what actually came to fruition. We were fortunate that even with debt collection not quite being where we wanted to be, let's say we went underwrote 1% or 2%, maybe we're at 3 or 4 but rent has, rent has gone up 15%, 20%, which, which wow. really helped uh, profitability.
1: Wow, that's that's great. Yeah. The what I found is why I asked that question is because when speaking to a property manager just a few days ago in um, in Tampa, which is obviously yeah. one of the hot markets of the United States, they're sure saying is. in some of their C class, they're seeing delinquencies up to fifteen percent. So it's just obviously it's per property, it's per how it's managed, how the quality of it, you know, when they took over management. There's so many different variables. So right,
0: right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it, it could be very dependent on a specific, you know, market niche. And one of the things we look for to try to avoid situations where you're too dependent on a particular employer mm-hmm. or a particular um, industry is look for employment diversity. So if you have, let's say, a school that's hit really hard or one manufacturing segment, that's really hard. Or if you have a Goodyear or Michelin or something and they, they take a hit, that that risk is offset by diversity employment both size, both industry, and across just different uh, different employers in general. Interesting. So Andrew, tell us
1: about uh, like building a team and how that's helped you close deals while working full-time and having a family and doing it so quickly after just being introduced to it.
0: Yeah, the reality is, I mean, everybody has a couple things or maybe one or two. If you're really lucky, three things you're really good at. And it took me a while to real, to find my stride with that. Is in the beginning, when you're starting out, you don't know what you don't know and you're trying to cover a lot of bases you know a lot of us are go-getters class a overachievers trying to cover the world diy approach and the reality is you, you can only go so fast so far uh, on your own that way so it to me the biggest game changer and i continue to refine what my scope of this and what this looks like for me is like finding people that have similar values the complementary skill sets and that only can create exponential growth. And it's, I learned that the hard way and a painful lesson trying to balance that with, you know, working 50 hours a week in the day job, having, being a family man and lots of hobbies and and friends and trying to keep my social life somewhat alive.
1: Interesting. So if you had to do it again with um, starting from 15 years back with a house hack, which I think is always a great way of starting, yeah. but what would you have changed on your journey to getting where you are now and where you're going in the future?
0: Yeah. I think the, the first thing that comes to mind that you just mentioned is instead of trying to go at this myself, one property at a time, go, find, you know, go network my way to find the right partners with the right mindset. Similar goals and aspirations, but complementary skills to go faster. So, building a team and then changing my focus, and I'll call it the focus locus from the single and short term to the larger, even if it is joint venture based on either larger or mid sized apartment buildings, just to go just for the sheer fact that you get more bang for your time. Yeah,
1: that's great. Yeah, it's easier said than done when finding partners because it's difficult to. Find partners, like you said, to have complementary mindsets and qualities, but also finding um, partners that are as serious as you are. And obviously, us both being very serious people and you're finding partners, when you're working with someone, they're like, oh, yeah, I want to do it. And they really don't want to do it. You know what I mean? They just went to the meetup or they went to this conference. So it's kind of, it becomes more difficult. I know you joined a mastermind. um, And when you're inside a mastermind, I've joined a couple myself within real estate. It's just one of those things that... You hate to have to join or do stuff like that, but you find people that have kind of really invested into what they're doing and yeah. when you're in a mastermind group. So tell me what you think
0: about that, Andrew. Yeah, I will say here's my, my lessons learned from mastermind groups is, you know, you don't know, you don't know going in just like anything else. And you you think you're going into a group of equally motivated individuals. And, and the more of these groups I join, I think the faster my filter becomes on who do I want to work with from this team? Now, obviously people join with similar interests and passions, but you know, very quickly, I shouldn't say very quickly in the beginning, it took months, but more quickly, the more often you expose yourself to these groups, you realize who's really on your same page, same energy level, same wavelength, same values versus who's here just to kind of dream. And I found that the first couple of groups I joined, there was 80 to 90% of them were they, I, I, I wasn't seeing them making offers. I wasn't seeing them make engaging brokers. There's just some hesitancy there. And that's where, really what I was looking for is someone who's got similar energy to me, similar motivation, similar goals, but again, the complementary skills, and it's rare to be honest. Like you yeah. said, it's not easy and it takes exhausting amounts of discipline and consistency to keep engaging and keep doing that. I'll call them speed dating rounds with, Hey, grab a coffee with somebody, grab a beer for 10, 15 minutes, grab a virtual zoom meeting on a Friday. You may not feel like it, but the more people you expose yourself to in these smaller groups, the greater your probability becomes of finding the right partner. Yeah. And the other thing too, is when you
1: start actually doing deals or being part of deals or however you'll measure Mm -hmm. yourself, uh, just moving forward, people will reach out to you and want to partner and hope, you know, those are most likely people that are going, you know, you can kind of cherry pick those people and find out who you're going to partner with. But it's really just kind of like, you know, movement, you know, kind of breeds more movement. And uh, it's it's very interesting. But um, so one question I had when I was doing some research for this episode is like, when Mm -hmm. potential passive real estate investors are pondering, whether they should invest or not in real estate, and we've all had these conversations, and it's usually the stock market is usually the other investors kind of like investment option. So you've invested in stocks for over 10 years, what would you consider
0: to be the main pros and cons when compared to multifamily real estate investing? Yeah, I think about like you mentioned. It's probably it's actually been more than ten years since I've started dabbling in in the GE's and mutual funds of the world and buying different securities. Um, You know, I always hold a portion of my you know our wealth in the stock market. Again, again, I grew up with four hundred one ks and things like that. The biggest thing with that is the volatility to me. Uh, So you you have no control, you no insights in these companies other than what they publicly report. You have no uh, you know there's no there's nothing you can touch and feel. It's not tangible. Again, with real estate, phenomenal uh, downsides to to real estate, especially in multifamily syndications, are hey, you've got to trust the group you're in, and I see that as much of a pro as a con because you're hands off. It's it's a, absolutely, you know, completely important that you trust the right team. You pick the right team. You pick the right property. The holding period, right? You got the liquidity issue with with real estate, but again, you know, if you're thinking longer term, two, three, four, five years are typical hold periods. You know, as long as you're, you're okay with that, not as much of an issue. But again, it's something I can touch and feel historically much more stable. Historically, rents don't go down. And historically, you know, you can weather recessions and things like that really well in multifamily compared to stocks, which if you've been through 2008, 2009, you know how that went. Yeah. So uh, other thing I look at is tax, right? I mentioned how much I really dislike and displease the uh, January, February timeframe every year when my accountant gives me the bill. And that's another thing you get it with stocks, especially if you're a short-term trader, which I did for a while, you're getting hit with a third, 40%. I just hard to stomach that, you know, but again, it'll be a balance for me, but my balance is shifting a lot more towards real estate, um, especially as I get, you know, more and more passive income on a month or quarterly basis under my belt.
1: Yeah. Real estate. It's one thing with real estate is I find is that if you invest in the real estate and people always i'll t- I'll touch a lot of stock people and they'll talk about the liquidity. I personally don't mind the liquidity. I like the idea of setting capital for three, four, or five, maybe seven yeah. years if we're going through some sort of downturn and not having to worry about it again. You know what I mean? You're setting yeah. it. I don't have to underwrite another deal again If, you know, if something, if I'm active in that deal, then you're just running the deal yeah. right with with your other partners. If you're passive, then it's up to the operator to run it. But it's something that, it's not like with stocks where I'm like, you know, you have to be watching screens and doing stuff and like consistently, you know what I mean? Right. And, uh, it's like, you know, slow real estate is a lot slower with stuff that's happening. It's not going to be, you know, and the other thing too, is it's very difficult with real estate to lose all of your investment. Possibly if you're in a real estate syndication and 75% loan to value or 70% loan to value, I mean, maybe worst case scenario, you lose a few percent, but it's very difficult. I mean, when you're it looking is. at it over, I mean, over the whole thing, if the property's cash flowing, when you take it over, you know
0: what I mean? I'm a big statistics guy, right? So I look at what's the probability of things. My wife, she finds this hilarious. She's like, why is everything a probability to you?" I'm like, look, it's not an emotional thing to me. It's so if I look at what's, what's the probability of losing a percent or losing my entire investment, if you look at real estate, land never goes to, to zero. It's pretty unlikely with ample reserves and the right team with experience that they'll default on a property, right? It happens, right? But again, like you talked about leverage, using that effectively, uh, using debt service effectively, uh, having the right team in place, running the right operations, having the right PM. That risk is significantly lower than it would be with. Hey, if I go buy Bitcoin, I could lose half my money in a month. Two thirds of it. (laughs) There's a time and place for that too, but I I equate that more of the Vegas, you know, entertainment level than I do a true uh, institutional grade investment. Yeah. The
1: other thing too is even if you don't add, if even if you you go into a group and they don't add any value to the property and the rent stays same and everything like this, or you you know rents go up by inflation, you're still paying down debt. I mean, you're still becoming safer every month on that property, in a better position. Yeah, and you know, I I feel that the longer you own property, the less risky it is. It is,
0: yeah. If you think about your summation of your cash flows too, let's say you invest fifty or hundred thousand dollars, and you start distributing second quarter, third quarter, you're getting that whatever that prep would be six, seven, eight percent. So by year two, you've recouped a good chunk of your investment already, and if you were to default at that point, you've already made some of your money back. So, again, getting to zero value would be pretty difficult to do. Yeah. Honestly, the yeah. stars will have to align the wrong direction.
1: Yeah, of course, if, especially if you're in one of the markets that we really focus on. You and I in uh, growing markets, yeah. that's there's
0: always going to be buyers that want into those markets. But um, and that's what we look for really is like how do you how do you really stack the deck in your favor? Is you you buy into a market where hey it hasn't reached its plateau. And there's a massive demand supply amounts like where if you look at my background right now, for those that are on video, it's uh, just just under contract in a property in Greenville, South Carolina, right. historically under the radar, but it's becoming now, you know, right up against the Charlotte or Atlanta and uh, it's flown under the radar for some time. And now there's a massive, massive uh, building frenzy going on because of the, just trying to keep up with demand and the jobs going in the area. So oh, fantastic. That's great. Yeah. Uh, So
1: when you're raising capital, uh, Andrew, what have you found to be the most beneficial ways of building credibility with your investors?
0: Yeah, I think what comes down to one word, education. And I'm not here to be a salesman. I'm not here to, you know, try to pitch something. It just really, I think one thing that holds a lot of people back from the biggest thing that holds people back from professional, you know, W-2 professionals or business owners is from investing is just lack of education or awareness, Oh, that seems so risky. You know, what about, why wouldn't I just buy one property at a time? Why would I put this in other people's hands? Well, a lot of people just aren't aware of the benefits. So I see it as my job to be an educator, just more like a professor, right? And in the sense that like, hey, and along the way, I'll share some opportunities I've vetted, I've come across that I'm investing in and offer you the same opportunity. So that's, it's as simple as that for me. It's not, it's not a sales role. It just as much about awareness and education as anything else. Interesting. So what are common mistakes
1: that you see real estate investors make?
0: Oh, man. So I, I'd say, you know, the the last couple of years where we have significant cap rate compression has covered up a lot of yes poor operations or lazy operations. So, you know, not staying on top of asset management uh, duties. Again, we've gotten away with that as a whole, as, as a profession in the last couple of years. And you see a lot of okay, yeah, I'll let that property go for a couple of months. The PM can do their own thing. You see them, you know, renew leases at the old rates, not stay on top of, of upkeep and maintenance. Um, you know, some operators out there have underraised capital and run out of money, things like that. They're probably the most common I've seen the last couple of years from different operators and, you know, other partners who have struggled with certain uh, certain things.
1: Yeah, and when that market cycle turns more kind of flat, And sideways versus going up, that's when you're really going to see the true operators that are able to change management to increase profitability or to hold profitability, even with costs going up. And that's a lot of work because it's, you can't just tell your, you can't just get reports from your manager and say, oh, everything's fine. We, you know, everything went up and stuff like that. Now it's really like, hey, where can we, you have to be more active asset management. And I don't think a lot of people really
0: have the experience in doing that. One of the things I've gotten really selective on is that when I look to partner with an operator, again, because my role was mainly around investor relations and raising capital, due diligence, earnest money. So when I look for an operator who does this full time, you know, one, one of my big screens in my brain is are they often just chasing the next deal in the middle of closing yeah. one deal. I don't want someone who's like the Walmart of syndicator. right? That, that might be great. They get access to good deals, but I want quality over quantity. And if someone is, is quickly chasing the next deal rather than stabilizing their first, that comes out in my reference calls with investors. It comes across with my, my reference calls with other partners and it's easy to sniff that out now. So that's this one, just one tip I have for, for those looking, if you're looking to partner with someone, just make sure your values and, and your level of uh, aggressiveness and growth versus quality is aligned with theirs. Yeah.
1: yeah I, I totally agree with you. I, we I've seen that a couple of years ago with uh, one operator and, um, we, you weren't getting timely reporting. You're like, well, what's going on here? What's happening right. here? Right. And, um, you know, they're, they're, you know, doing something crazy, building something new or whatever it yeah. is. And you're like, well, still got this over here. You know what I mean? And uh, so mm-hmm. it's really important that they have a solid and the, the best operators that are growing um, portfolios and they, they're growing their team as well alongside them. Yeah. So I mean, just that there's, uh, you know, there's accountability, and you're getting reporting on time, you're getting calls on time, everything like that, and uh, they're not like you said, um, all the way down the road now, and on more deals, f- and forgot about the one that they closed a while back. So
0: you nailed it, man. And, then, and it's there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with having huge aspirations and, and going big really quickly. But the one component is having the team behind you to support it, right? So if you're trying to close. Mm-hmm. Four, five, six, eight, 10 deals a year and do the asset management, the acquisitions, you know, the debt, the debt work, working with legal, working with investors and trying to do that with a one or two-person team, but that scale, it's gonna be either gonna stress or burn yourself out, or you're gonna fall behind in areas like you mentioned, whether it's, you know, getting your K1s out on time or getting your monthly and quarterly reports, it's keeping up with distributions, keeping up with asset management. It's very hard to balance them. And scale at you know dozens of properties a year. So, what do you think are the main factors that have uh, contributed
1: to your success, Andrew, over the years?
0: Trial and error, <laughs> a little bit of that, truthfully. But no, I mean, really, for me, it's been just just keeping consistent with daily habits and refining and building and building partnerships and teams. And again, like I mentioned, lessons learned even from as close to a year or two back is. You know, depending on what your what your goals are and how much time you have available, and what you're trying to balance and what your priorities you have in your life is really going after finding partners to go faster uh, a lot more quickly, right? Um, and it, for me, it's just been the, my habit of consistency, and I'm just relentless with that. Of you know, whether it's devoting a couple hours a week to promoting your thoughts and content and social media, you may not feel like doing that, but you, you know it's so important to get your your message and word out to as many people as you can to help as many people as you can. And it could just be, you know, like like I mentioned, even when you don't feel like it, get yourself out there, promoting your content, building education, building building an education and thought leadership platform and being consistent with communication to your investors. Again, the the key word is consistency for me. Yeah, I can see it. The right things uh, consistently. Mm -hmm.
1: How can our listeners learn more
0: about you and your business, Andrew? Really simple. I I think everything funnels through our website. It's investwithredline.com. Our firm's name is Redline Equity. Uh, very closely tied to our automotive habit. And uh, we've got a podcast out there that's funneled through the website as well. It's called Crashing Cashflow. Check it out. But on our website, again, everything investwithredline.com. Got a free eight-port learning series that kind of gets you through our system, gets you access to our newsletter, all the cool content we're putting out on a weekly basis. So check us out. That sounds great, Andrew. Well, thank
1: you so much for coming on today and uh, looking forward to connecting with you here in the near future. Thank you so much for the opportunity,
0: Charles. Great talking to you. Talk to you soon. Thanks, man.